hope that you find the title of this message very grabbing. And it was my aim that if we would have anyone to read the bulletin and see that, they would be very interested into what I have to say. But Christ is no angel. And uh, I think that we should all say praise the Lord that Christ is no angel. Christ is truly God and truly man. And Christ has come to accomplish redemption and salvation for those who are his. And we see that that has been done. And he said it upon the cross to tell us, die, it is finished. And as we've gone through the Hebrews, I never really considered it that it could be one of the greatest books of the Bible. But I think that, that God has designed his word so that the truths of Christ in every scripture when we're examining those texts that we should think that that whatever passage that we're on today is the most marvelous passage about Jesus Christ and and when I consider the Hebrews and in, in our study we've been here since March and it's just amazing to see who Christ is and how God himself describes his son Jesus Christ and, and when we consider the text, we see that we cannot explore everything and every part of who Christ is, but we get glimpses and, and pictures and we see different facets of what Christ has done for sinful man and what <clears throat> Christ is doing in the lives of the believer. And we think, how marvelous, how wonderful is this man, Jesus Christ, who is also God. And when I consider the, the, the text, even this morning, uh, without even preaching from the text, but just considering as we're singing the hymns, I, I was brought to tears thinking about how marvelous Christ is and how wonderful this scripture is as it describes our Savior. And I want us to look, uh, beginning with verse 14, so that we receive the text in, in its proper context. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Or in the King James Version it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Let's go to the Lord. Almighty God in heaven, as we uh, meet this morning, Lord, we praise your name for the work that you've done. Lord, we praise you for the desire that you've given us in our heart that you would uh, cause man to go against his nature in order that he would desire to serve you and desire to worship you and desire to know who you are, God. And we just ask this morning that as that is our purpose for being here worship and praise and glory and honor god we just ask that you would give to us this day through the message and through uh, the lips of sinful man god myself that you would proclaim who christ is from this text uh, that we would see christ in a way that we have never seen him lord that we would consider salvation and consider the great mercies and the great grace that you have towards your people and that we would be awestruck god that we would fall upon our knees that we would be broken over sin where we are sinful people we're a needy people 
We're weak people, but with Christ, we have strength. With Christ, we have righteousness. And God, we praise you for it. And we ask this day that uh, the seed that goes forth is has been watered. Lord, we ask that it is watered, that it is planted in good soil. Lord, that you would provide an increase unto salvation for someone here today, God, and that you would renew the strength of the saints, uh, those who already know that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and that his sacrifice is sufficient. We just pray that he is exalted today and that you would receive our worship and you would give to us spiritual discernment of your word and your son. In his name we pray, amen. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. We've seen throughout our study of Hebrews chapter 1, we see the God's final and supreme revelation in Jesus Christ. And then we see a portion that will uh, mesh very well with the text today from verses uh, 5 through 14 as the son is to be exalted as Christ is to be considered as the highest of the high as the most high prophet priest and king and how he is above every created being especially that of angels and then we're reminded in chapter 2 with the beginning do not neglect this great salvation that we have in the one who is greater than the angels the one who is fully man and fully God, Jesus Christ. And then we see as man is given uh, all things to his subjection, as man is remembered by God for, for only one reason, for God's purpose, for God's glory, because it is God's will. We see that man could not fulfill that which we he has been given of God. And so we see the Son of Man now considered Jesus Christ, the one who is crowned with glory and honor, the one who now as man has taken his appointment over the work of God's hands, the one who is having all things in subjection under his feet. This is Jesus Christ. And then we see as it progresses that through all these things, Christ has accomplished redemption. Christ has accomplished salvation. What does that mean? He is bringing many sons to glory. And we see that and as we continue here today, we see how Christ does that. Why Christ has taken on human flesh. And we do well to be reminded of the context as we're moving to verse 16. It says, therefore, in verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood. This is the, the statement that is being built upon in verse 16. So what we have presented... As I read uh, the text from two uh, different translations, we have one truth of Jesus Christ. And uh, we begin to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16, and the focus is Christ. The focus is not angels. The focus is not men. The focus is not God the Father, but the focus is on the exalted Son, Jesus Christ. Always, this is our intent to see Christ in the scriptures, to follow Christ in spirit and in truth throughout our, our daily walk, throughout our lives, uh, our lives that are given as a sacrifice. We're, we're to follow and see Christ in the scriptures so that as we see Christ, 
We completely and solely rely on Christ for salvation. And we trust in Christ. We trust in Christ for He is the one who is able to forgive. He is the one who is able to impute His righteousness. He is the one who is able to justify sinful flesh before a just and holy God. He is the one who we are to ultimately serve. He is the one who is to be exalted. With this purpose... And this understanding behind our opening of the inspired Word of God with this purpose and understanding of its intent as it is given to man, we look to see this Christ. There is taken from the different translations sometimes a great controversial rendering of the Greek text. My purpose today is to disarm the contention so that the people of God would see Christ in this scripture and see what is being proclaimed and see how wonderful Christ is and that the text really reveals the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. And so we may soon understand that the statement here is one concerning the nature of Christ. And his work is not mutually exclusive of the statement found in the verse of a more modern rendering text, modern rendered text, like the King James Version versus your ESV or your NASB or your New King James. There is no real dissension amongst those, like some would say. There is really no different truth conveyed, but what I would like to bring forth is how Christ is spoken of in these texts so that we would understand that they really mesh well together and what we have is uh, the inspired word of God that is unadulterated that we can know from our study of the, the Greek text and from what we can know of our study of manuscript evidence that the truth resounds and that that is Christ saving his people, Christ taking on flesh and blood, Christ who is greater than any created being, Christ who is eternal Christ, who is Savior, Lord, Prophet, Priest, and King. The complexities of Christ may be understood in a myriad of ways. Christ is not limited by the understanding of the mere mortal mind. That means that just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not true of Christ. And just because the Bible says something that we can not wrap our minds around, it doesn't mean that it's not true. And so what we have in the scriptures is the, the text, the word of God, the bread of life being revealed to us that we should read it every morning knowing that there is something there that we have not seen before. Christ is not limited. His work has always been viewed by man, a believing man, with a thought process that is inferior to his thought process and that is limited in every way in every comparison to how Christ behaves and how Christ thinks. And an eternity will tell the marvels and the glories and the wonders of God in Christ and forever shall we contemplate these wonders and the supremacy of God's mercy and grace. And it is revealed to us in verse 16 this morning. This is why we assemble to learn of Christ, to worship and exalt it is for this reason that we examine the text this morning for the spiritual nourishment that it has been given in order to provide our spiritual appetites. 
And that's why we look to the text. Not to be right or wrong, not to cause dissension amongst the people of the church, not to cause dissension between uh, denominations, but to see how wonderful Christ is. And to begin, we look back and discover the natural progression of the text before we've even gotten to verse 16. And what we're first warned of in chapter 2 is to play pay much closer attention to the gospel. Pay much closer attention so that we do not drift away from this gospel. Because drifting away from this gospel would mean that we're drifting away from the Savior. And, and though it may not appear that by having a false gospel or by not opening the word that we're drifting away, that's exactly what drifting does. If anyone's ever gone fishing or been on a boat and, and you're sitting casting towards a point, you're not paying attention and before you know it, you're way far away further than you think and that is exactly what the world and what sin and what the flesh does to the brethren to the people of Christ if we're not paying very close attention if we're not anchored to Christ who is the anchor if we're not attached to this Jesus we'll drift away therefore there is a warning here a warning in chapter 2 to pay much closer attention and I'm reminded of this time when I was working at a body shop. My business partner still owns it, and I was in high school, and we were joking about, uh, with, with my old high school principal there, we were joking about how tough it was uh, to work uh, for this business partner of mine. And uh, the, the principal said something. I said, yeah, but what you don't understand, it's just hard to love him. And I was just joking, but the, the guy said, you know what? You're, you're a Christian, right? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, then it's very easy to love him. And I didn't respond to him, but in my mind, I thought of this text as we're considering it today. It's not easy to love as we should. It's not easy to stay solid on the rock that is Christ and on the gospel. And that's why we're reminded. That's why Paul, at every opportunity, must correct the church. That's why Paul is reminding of Christ because the things that we ought to do are not easy because the flesh opposes that which is spiritual. It's not easy to love. It's not easy to follow. But it is very easy to stray. And for this reason, when we see Hebrews chapter 2, we're reminded not to stray from this gospel. The good news that Christ has died in the stead of sinners. And that his dying brings about for those who believe and receive, it brings about death to sin. That means not that the mortal body is dying, for we know that. We know that the mortal body is passing away, that this life is but a vapor. But for those who have truly received Christ, sin is dying. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the sin in our life dying? Is this the truth of the gospel that is being presented before us this morning? That it is bringing about a death to sin and a life in Christ. A life to righteousness. But then the gospel goes further and it shows us this victory that Christ has had over death. It shows us this in the resurrection of our Savior. And in turn the truth that Christ as He comes is conquering death in our life so that we would have life eternal and it's only in His name and by His power and by His sacrifice. 
To the believer, the Holy Spirit is testifying these truths. If we can receive a truth about Christ this morning, if we can discern the truth of the text, the Christ in the text this morning, it is because the Holy Spirit has come and He has entered the heart and He has changed and He has brought about the truths and applied those truths to our lives. It is no thing that we can boast about. It is not something that the most intelligent man in our congregation can understand apart from the Spirit. It doesn't matter how many times you open your Bible or how many times you close your mouth and say not a word. I would submit to you that even those who take this vow of silence, they still sin. We can try whatever we want, but without this Holy Spirit who is God, we cannot understand the truths of Christ. We cannot be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is why this morning, if you realize the truth, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, it is not I, it is not my voice, it is not the words, it is not just the text, it is the Christ of the Scripture who by His Spirit is testifying who He is and what He has done. In that, we may also see who we are. But the Spirit is bearing witness 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The response to the gospel is by the Spirit. Plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 1. Jesus is Lord can only be resounded from the mouth of sinful man if it is by the Holy Spirit. That is the only way. So we heed the warning of chapter 2 in its, in its beginning. Preach, it is teaching us. Preach and be preached to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only intent of the word given by God to men. And yes, angels were sometimes the messengers. Without doing these things, one will not escape the just wrath of God, the penalty due our sin, without conforming to the image of Christ, without being preached to the gospel, without preaching the gospel. One cannot avoid certain death. And then with verse 5, we have a great reminder, and it's given of the effects of the gospel and the need of man alone to receive it and have to him its truths and promises applied. This is the only need that man has in the church, uh, in large part universal, gets sidetracked. We need to be talking about Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 every Sunday because we get caught up in the needs of man that is not eternal but temporal. We get caught up in the needs of finances, food, house, car. All of these things when we need to be reminded of the need that we have for a Savior. A need for Jesus Christ because there is no other Savior. This is the gospel. We need it applied to our lives. We can't do it by our own lips or by our own hands or by our own will. Can't do it by just arriving here on Sunday or putting an offering in the box. That doesn't do it. It must be applied by the one to whom has accomplished this salvation. The gospel is declared in its intent for man and not angels. And that's what we see 
in Hebrews as we have moved from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Glory and honor for man, not angels. Dominion appointed to man, not angels. All things subjected to man, not angels. This is given that we do not confuse any other creation with the creation of angels. For it was unto one creation that Christ has become effect. Salvation has been appropriated for the one fallen race, and that is mankind, not angels. Christ is superior in all ways to the angels and to mere man and to anything else that you can think of. And chapter 1 does not fail in showing us his majesty and his deity and his humanity. Then verse 9 begins showing us how Christ fulfills what man was created to but could not. Becoming lower than the angels, he who was higher, suffering death, he who is immortal and eternal. And for those who would face certain death and torment, Christ has stood in their stead. No other has done this. I would submit to you that when we see in John the hireling is representative of every man except for Christ because there's only so long that we're willing to stand and then we're willing to run. And that is our desire. No one else wants to die for you. No one else is able. No one else is willing. No one else is deity except for Jesus Christ. And this is what he has done. This is the truth of his gospel. Then the text continues to describe how God willed all things to accomplish such a great salvation through Christ. Great detail is given that we would not, <clears throat> excuse me, great detail is given that we would see that man must pay the debt of man, and yet man is unable, and then we see that God is wealthy enough to do so. God is the only one who has something precious enough that the price for sin could be paid. We know that that is the blood of Jesus Christ. He is also one who has ascribed this particular uh, a sentence, this particular uh, attribute. Christ is he who is rich in mercy and in grace and in righteousness. He is so wealthy that his offering could pay the penalty for an infinite number of souls, for an infinite number of creation. Christ is that priceless that he alone could pay the price. He could cover every debt. And I submit to you that any debt that is covered, he is the one who has covered it. And for those who have not Christ, who receive not Christ, when they enter into eternity, when they head towards hell, the reason that it is for an eternity is because they can never pay. We can never pay. We're a people who come and to some extent we think that we're good here, but we cannot pay. We are broke. Spiritually broken. No matter what all that you think you have this morning, it is left on this earth. And you can't grab a hold of it and you can't take it with you and you can't reassign it to someone else. We must see that our sin separates us so greatly from God and that we must rely on this Christ. He is wealthy and He can pay the debt. And then verses 14 and 15 depict exactly how Christ has done these things. His completed work. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. 
And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And then here's the point in which we arrive at verse 16. It's the following, the account of Christ taking on the likeness of man with the incarnation that is of human flesh. Truly God, truly man. This is he. This is the Christ. This is what verse 16 is describing. The modern English translation says he surely does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. And in the King James it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The two statements are one and the same. Jesus Christ did not, in fact, take on himself the nature of angels, but instead he takes on the nature of human. Humanity. Flesh. There was a purpose for this. And the modern translations are describing this for us. There was a purpose that is being borne witness to the underlying truth of why Christ did not take on himself the nature of angels. Because his intent was not to help angels. Christ's intent was not to make himself like an angel to do something that the other angels could not do. For they derive their power from Christ and their orders are from God and they answer to Him and they follow His will and they follow His word. The problem is they need no salvation. And if we think that Christ has some kind in some way become an angel, we have greatly erred. We have a false gospel. And unfortunately some people think that Christ is like an angel, that Christ is just a prophet. Some people think that angels are equal to Christ. And any time that we would consider one of these things, we have fallen short of the mark. We have not seen Christ for who He is. Christ has taken not upon Himself the nature of angels because He was coming not to help angels, but to help the descendants of Abraham. And I think even here, Neither translation really relays the message in its entirety. Christ didn't come to help man. Christ came to save man. When I think of helping, helping is like when somebody's doing something and they, it, it, they're struggling real bad. Uh, you know, maybe they're trying to pick up something. And we come up next to them and we help them pick it up. Helping means that somehow the person who is being helped is assisting in the work. To say that Christ has helped man somehow insinuates, I believe, that man is able to do something and Christ is assisting. But what I am telling you this morning is that the help that Christ provides is unique because He is doing it all. Not only is Christ doing all the work, but He is allowing us to see His work so that we can worship and glorify, so that we can be with Him. The fact that Christ purposes everything, the, the fact that Christ allows grace and mercy and that we take a breath and that we have these things in life, even the unbelievers have certain mercies and graces of God. If they do not recognize that Christ has given them, it does not make it any less His work. But the marvelous part is that He is not just assisting, He is allowing us to see all of His work because He wants the glory and honor. And when He receives the glory and honor, and when we see that it is His, we can follow, and we can serve, and we can be conformed, and we can be saved. Any grace and mercy, any true grace and mercy is of God. 
whether it's for the unbeliever or the believer, but the one who actually sees and notes that it is of God, to that is a man whom mercy has been extended to the utmost. Grace has been given uh, to the greatest degree because now that he can submit to the Lord of Lords, he can be saved. This is the, the Christ that we follow. And so we see that Christ is not coming to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. This is the children of God. These are spiritual descendants of human flesh. And this is uh, stated elsewhere that it, it, not all who are of Israel of Israel, not all who descended from Abraham are the children of God, but it is a spiritual nature that we're talking about. The spiritual nature to which one has righteousness. Abraham was accounted with righteousness. And when it says the descendants of Abraham, it is not saying just simply those who come from the line of Abraham, but it is saying those who come from a line and have righteousness. Now, whose righteousness do they have? Christ's righteousness. Why? Because Abraham's righteousness was Christ's righteousness. Before Christ had taken on human flesh, Abraham had the righteousness of Christ. How can it be? Because Christ is eternal. All of this is building here, so that we see verse 16 and see what Christ is doing here. The spiritual descendants of human flesh, we may understand, are these descendants of Abraham if they have truly received Christ. Christ himself took on the nature of man. Willingly. Why would he do that? Because he, as God, who is and was and is to come, has come to do the will of God the Father... And since he is God, that is exactly what he has done. Christ didn't veer from the plan of God because he is God. Any plan that Christ would have must be God's plan. And if God being just is holding men accountable for their sin as he is, then it is also safe to assume that man, that flesh, that blood must pay for the debt accrued. That's a fact. God is saying that he's just. God is saying that he is righteous. God is a, a just judge. And if that is true. Man must pay for man. Every sin deserves death. On the other hand. As we consider that man is responsible. That man must pay. We also know that man on his own is worthless. His good deeds are like filthy rags. Man is more morally, spiritually, and literally financially bankrupt without Christ. Man is desperate. Man needs one who is holy to pay a great price. And not just a great price, but the greatest price. The greatest highest price ever paid was on Calvary's cross. And if you could somehow equate it to numbers and that there were some guys somewhere calculating this, they would have to be eternal beings to even begin to write it out, to begin to try to figure it out. No one could ever put to numbers what Christ has done. No one could add enough zeros no one could show us enough gold. No one could trade us a world or a, a galaxy or anything else and everything that it contains to equate to Christ. 
Man needs holy God. Not only to grant forgiveness and grace and mercy, but to be a propitiation. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, as it is written, says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. So we have a problem. Man is being held responsible. Man must pay the debt for sin. Man who is mere mortal cannot. Because no one's righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20 For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Speaking of every man except for Christ. What man can pay the debt? That's the question. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 3 says There is none holy like the Lord. Little indicator there. There is none holy like the Lord is holy. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. This is why Christ is the seed of Abraham. In order that he could therefore preserve the promised seed of Abraham as it was given to Abraham from God this promise. Scripture is fulfilled. Man is redeemed and man is reconciled by the one who fills the promise. Christ is the promise. He took not the nature of angels, for redemption was never for the angels. Angels need no redemption, for they're not the object of God's will. In fact, we see that described for us in Hebrews, that the angels were messengers. Think about that. God knew what he was doing when he created, and he created angels to be messengers. To be battlers, to be protectors. Why? Because he was protecting something that was precious before it was ever created. And that was mankind because Christ was going to die to save them. Angels' purpose are to, to follow and orchestrate what has been ordered to them of God so that redemption is accomplished and so that the people of God may be spared in the proper time so that they may be ministered to so that the word of God would go forth and that in its transmission we could open it up today and see Christ angels needed no redemption they're not the object of God's will this does in no way imply that angels uh, are all powerful without any help from Christ that's not what's being said here it's not saying that angels don't need help from God. Certainly angels are not angels without Christ. There can be no messenger if there is no there, there can be no message if there is no messenger. There can be no one to orchestrate the plans of the general, if you will, if there is not that one who is leading. Without the plan of God and Christ, there is no reason for anyone to exist or any being to be created. Because we know that all of creation is to exalt the name of Christ and to worship the great God Almighty. This is why Christ is taking on human flesh and not uh, the likeness of angels. But the subject of chapter 2 in Hebrews as we began was salvation in Christ alone. This is not a matter for the angels. They were never meant or made mention of as those who would receive redemption. But rather the context speaks of what Christ as man has done, in fact, for mankind. Not speaking of what Christ is doing for angels, but what Christ is doing for man, the brethren, the descendants of Abraham as we see it here. The help given them is not unto salvation if help is given to angels. 
It's not unto salvation, therefore it stands without reason, that he would not be made in their likeness. Why would Christ be made in the likeness of an angel? And yet still we have it described here and, and, and said so many times in the Hebrews because somebody is going to get it confused. We have to understand. Excuse me. The previous verse 14 declares that he, the Christ, the God-man, is destroying sin and death and Satan and the fallen angels who are with him. His beings are to remain with him in utter destruction. We know of that. No, there is not salvation for angels. And furthermore, Jesus Christ is no angel. We see no death curse unto angels. Likewise, nor is it written that blood of such a creature is to be shed or required of their sin. There's no mention of anything like that in the Bible. How could someone be so confused? The truth is that without the Spirit of God, we too would fall in the same trap. Without the grace and mercy of God in Christ, we too would believe anything. Anything except for the truth. No salvation for angels. Instead, what we see is the resounding news that Christ has become man in order to save man. To save the seed of Abraham, which is spiritual and not of lineage, not of kinship, not of flesh, but of spirit. And we know that all these things are true. And should we come to the knowledge of who Christ is, for without the discernment from his spirit, we know not that we can be saved. We think this Christ fellow is just a figment of someone's imagination. We don't think that we need saving, therefore there is no salvation without the truth of who Christ is, without knowledge and discernment of the Spirit of God giving us the truth of who Christ is. The angels even know who Christ is, and yet there is no revelation unto them. Because they already know who Christ is. They know who created them. They were there. There was no breeding of angels to bring about a little angel and then they wonder where they came from. No, they were there. They know who the Christ is. Why is the text of Scripture given? Because somebody does not know and these somebodies who do not know need to know so that they can be saved. Christ is taking on flesh. Christ is giving His body, His blood. Christ is giving His spirit so that man may know and that man may be saved in the knowledge of who He is. They need not any information, these angels, to fall or stay with the Christ because they know who He is. They fear and they tremble. They already know who He is. No ignorance can be claimed on the part of an angel. An angel will never say to the Lord Jesus, Who art thou? But rather, when we, when we see even the demons, they say, Have you come to torment us before the time? They know who the Christ is. What does that mean? If they know who Christ is and they are not submitting to Christ, they cannot be saved. Because the truth is, if we do know who the Christ is, if we can discern by the Spirit and the mercy of God given us, if we know who this Jesus Christ is, we will bow and we will be broken over sin and we will come to the foot of the cross and stay there. 
This is the Christ that we need. But man does need to know. Man needs to hear about Christ. Paul is very clear. We claim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach not ourselves, but Christ. And this is the Christ who is crucified. The Christ who says, die to yourselves and live and love your neighbor as yourself. Love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love him, you'll be spreading the gospel. You'll be proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what man needs. And this is what man must do. Natural man discerns not the Christ. The fallen or devout will say to the Christ, What can you do to save man? Or what could you have done? That's what, that's what the, the natural man says. What, what can this guy do? I mean, well, I don't really even need salvation. What can this Christ do for me? The angels know, beloved, what Christ has done. Fallen or in the state in which they're serving Christ, they know what Christ has done. This text is not written, written for angels. But this news, the news that we hear today is that man may hear of the great love of Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the man who is risen. This is shown to men so that they may place their trust and live as opposed to dying. Life Eternal is life in Jesus Christ. It's life in His name. It's life in the name of the only begotten. He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. This is why Christ has taken on the flesh. Taken on the flesh of man that He may save man. That He may redeem man. And that man could be as much like Abraham as Abraham is of Christ. Not that Abraham was some great man. I believe that what it's saying here is the same thing that we see. Be ye imitators of me, but be ye imitators of me as far only as I am an imitator of Christ. Don't copycat the pastor. Don't copycat the deacons. You know, if you want to be like someone, be like Christ. So what we see as we consider the text is that Flesh and blood is what humanity is made of. Not of some angelic being that we think of might having wings or having a halo. But that flesh and blood is what makes up humanity. Christ has taken on himself this flesh and blood. Death is something that is ascribed to the human, not to angels. And this is what we see being spoken of, death, in Hebrews chapter 2. We see the conquering of that. Why is that? Because it does not apply to angels. Flesh and blood does not. Death does not. Fear of death that is described there in the previous verses is something that belongs to man and is only belonging to man, not of angels. Therefore, Christ must in every way, as God, taking on himself human flesh, 
He must in every respect take on the same nature as these mortal men. Suffering in temptation. Something that man has to deal with, not the angels. They're tempted. We are tempted. And we stand here this morning to hear of Christ because we know that if we're not tempted in this moment, we will be in the next. And that there is no salvation apart from Christ. Yet there is one who is Jesus and he has been tempted and he has sinned not because he is accomplishing redemption. The message this morning is that we may trust in the Christ of the Bible because he alone is God. And not only is he alone God, but he alone is the only God who has ever taken on human flesh. And he is not only just the only God and the only God who has taken on human flesh, but he is the only God who has taken on human flesh, who has lived as a man, who has sinned not, who has gone to the cross, who has died and paid a price that was not his own. This is the Christ who died in our stead. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the one of whom the good news is of. There is no good news apart from Jesus Christ. And there is no good news if you do not see today that we sin and we are headed to hell without Christ. The smallest lie, the smallest disobedience, straight to hell. No other way. There is no escape. And you could boast all you wanted if you could get on Ancestry.com and find out that you came from Abraham, but it will do you no good unless you share in the spirit of Abraham. The spirit of Abraham is not a spirit that belonged to Abraham, but it is a spirit given, mercifully given, graciously given. Received from a heart that is willing because God has changed it. We must be asking ourselves this morning for the Word of God to transform us and to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring us to a broken state over sin. The reality is that we don't do it, we're not broken over sin. I don't care how many times we cry when we're praying. Or how many times that we say, Lord, I have sinned. We truly are not a broken people. We can't be. Because if we were broken in every moment, we wouldn't need to be reminded of what Christ has done. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done. We need to wake up, not just Sunday mornings and Wednesday afternoons, thinking that, okay, we're going to church today and we're going to serve Christ. We need to wake up thinking of Christ and how we may serve Him. Better yet, we need to be sleeping and dreaming of how we may serve Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The dreams I've had are of pigs getting out lately. Nothing of Christ. I'm dreaming of earthly things because that's where my mind is most of the time. It's a reality for everyone that if we are not in the Word, that we'll be thinking of earthly things. Our thoughts will be given to earthly things. Our flesh will be given to us as a leader. And we don't want to follow after the flesh. We must follow after the Christ. Let's uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come before you again this afternoon, Lord, we just uh, 
We thank you, Lord, for your presence. Lord, we thank you for your spirit who has provided us a a quiet time uh, that we may focus and concentrate on your word. God, I just pray uh, today that for myself, Lord, uh, as a pastor of this church and as a leader in this church, uh, that the truth of Christ would reign supreme and that uh, his grace and his mercy would be an ever-present thought with, with each thing that, that I deal with, Lord, so that the people uh, may be led towards Christ. Lord, and I pray that, that the deacons and the elders and the men of their families and the women and the children would likewise follow suit, Lord, to, to follow the Christ. That we would open your word, Lord, not because we need to, but because we desire to do so. Because we desire conformity. Lord, and we just pray that uh, the truths of Christ and that uh, love for Christ would be given to us in an abundance. God, in so much as that we cannot uh, run away from it, but Lord, that we would run to it. That we would robe ourselves in the righteousness of, of God and Christ. Lord, we just pray that Jesus is, is exalted and that you would receive our worship this morning and that it would be pleasing to you, Lord, uh, that... Uh, you would find yourself uh, gathered in, in the house and all over the world, Lord, not just in this church, but in the church universal, receiving the glory and honor and praise that you deserve. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for your blessings, Lord, both spiritual and temporal. And Lord, we just ask that you would give us uh, these clean hearts that would focus upon your gospel and upon your person. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to take a look at Romans chapter 7 um, because in Christian infancy and even sometimes in what we think uh, as Christian maturity we tend to get a, a, a skewed view on the freedom that we have in Christ and also the law that is given and uh, Romans chapter 7 I believe describes the unity there and and the interconnectedness of both the law and the freedom which we have in Christ uh, and the burden of the law and the relief that there is uh, from the law in Christ and that he has fulfilled it. And by looking at these things, I think it's important that we would begin with the first verse and, and just read through there and then we'll look over some of these things. It says, uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, I, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. 
But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear the fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful." For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it. But sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I, not, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I just want to stop there. It's a very complex statement in in my mind when I try to tell someone this verse I always get it tongue tongue tied up uh, what Paul is saying there in Romans and it's a very unique perspective that we must have of sin and and because it is a unique perspective of sin it must be unique and that uh, the one who is seeing these things must see Christ and so that is what uh, we aim to do as we look at these passages tonight and, and go over them, but let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, we just ask uh, that your spirit be upon us and that uh, it be in us and making us willing to hear your word, Lord, and that you would open up our uh, spiritual eyes that we may see the wonders of the cross and that we see uh, the, the disadvantages of following only the law and that we see the advantages of Christ in the law and that he is the fulfillment of all things or that we would be freed from this bondage but that we would also still be finding doing what uh, finding ourselves doing what is good in your sight 
and what is pleasing, Lord. We just ask that you would mold us uh, and make us look more like Christ and make us love more like Christ and make us to serve him so that what we do, Lord, is in fact pleasing to you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would give us this perseverance that only you can give us. And uh, please bless us this evening as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sin's advantage in the law is how I would title this particular uh, portion beginning with verse 7. After Paul is writing here in this particular letter about freedom from the law beginning in the first verses of chapter 7, he soon moves to the uh, sin's advantage in the law. And he's telling us how it is profitable what, what's, what the law does for us, how it exposes sin. And so he begins, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because Paul is, is talking to the church and many times we see this throughout many epistles, how he's reminding the people of God, whom, whom he often calls brethren, or the beloved of God, if you will. He's calling the church and he's saying, uh, you're following the law who has caused you, uh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, who has turned you from the freedom in Christ, who has turned you from salvation by grace alone back to the letter of the law, who has called you to now be justified by the law in the flesh where you were once truly justified by Christ. And this is the gospel, that Christ is justifying, that Christ is drawing men to himself, that Christ is changing the heart. Christ is bringing his spirit and he's giving his spirit that we may understand the truths of the gospel, that we would not try to be justified by the flesh, but that we would be tried to that we would see justification in him alone by his shed blood on the cross. Now, many times as we consider uh, what we're reading today, we, we should be reminded just how many times people are called by Paul to abandon this uh, law-keeping idea, not that, the, that we should set the law aside, but that we see righteousness doesn't come by it. And, that, and that's the important part. There's nothing wrong uh, if we understand the law for what it is, there's nothing, nothing wrong with not committing murder. There's nothing wrong with not stealing. There's nothing wrong with telling the truth. And that's what the idea that he's trying to, to bring about, that these things are pleasing to God. And so oftentimes I have conversations with people and they say, you know, we do this or that. What do you think about it? And if you tell them you abstain or you don't do these certain things or, or you do do other things they say oh well, that's that's old testament there's no need to do that but what but what we fail to see sometimes and oftentimes is that the law is given as paul describes so it reveals the truth of sin but here's the other side of that if we are for lack of a better term, because we know we can't keep the law, but if we are attempting to do what is good, if we're attempting to keep the law for the glory of God because it's pleasing to Him, then it's okay to do that. I think, I think that we should do that. We shouldn't do it as a means of making ourselves whole or holy or making ourselves set apart or that we're better than someone. But if we're doing all that we do to please the Lord, then there is some provision for the law to be kept. And certainly the, the law has delighted the Lord because Christ 
has kept it all. How, how could he be, this be the son in whom he is well pleased? Why is he well pleased? Because he's given the perfect standard in the law and Christ has kept it. This is my beloved son. Well, in the same manner, how can we say that doing these things, God can't look at us and say, this is a beloved son? Well, the fact is that he can. But that he can only do that if we are keeping the law in accordance with our love for Christ. And I think that's what a lot of people miss. You can you could keep the law one way, Pat, and James could keep it because he loves Christ and you're just doing it out of, out of obligation. And there is a difference there. What is God looking at? He's not looking to see that you crossed your T's and dotted your I's, but he's looking to see is what the service going on here is the abstinence from certain activities, is the keeping of other activities. Is it for justification or is it for the glory of God? And so I would submit to you that that is what Paul is trying to, to pass in his statement here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Paul was saying, don't try to be justified by the law because in your justification by the law, you must keep the whole of it. And Christ has become of no effect to you, he says. But here, may it never be. The law is not sinful. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. This is the beautiful part about the gospel, that the gospel does two things. One, ultimately the gospel reveals who Jesus Christ is. But the second side to that coin is, is the truth of regeneration and the truth of belonging to Christ, that if one really belongs to Christ, if one really receives the, the message of the gospel and the person who the gospel is speaking of, which is Christ, if they truly receive that, then they must no sin for sin. You know, a lot of times people get the, the Baptist bath. Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in Him. Dunk me. Never come back. No change. Why is that? Because there is some belief that is not unto salvation. It's just a reality. There's no carnal Christian. Paul says, I speak to you as if you were of the flesh, as if you were carnal, because there is no true carnal Christian. One can't serve two masters. The, the house divided can't stand. You can't be holy one moment and unholy the next moment. The truth is that evil is not in control of the church and it is not in control of the body of Christ, but we're to be led by the Spirit. And here we have the same thing going on. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. To know Jesus Christ is to see now, not dimly in the mirror, but to see face to face what perfect righteousness looks like. And because we see perfect righteousness, now we see those blemishes. Now when we look at Christ, we don't only see Christ the Savior, but what Christ the Savior causes us to see is Christ is saying, here I am, perfect, full, holy, without spot, without blemish, and here you are, Tim. Here's what you look like. Here's where you're faulty. Here's where your blemish is. Here's where your spot is. Here's where your plank is in your eye, Tim. Christ is revealing himself while simultaneously revealing the wages and the truth of sin in the life of the believer. The ironic thing is, I believe that's why such a distinction is made as we see dimly. It's not that sin was never there before. 
It's not like those blemishes were somehow concealed or that they weren't just now popping up. But the truth is that we've cleaned away that which was uh, veiling the truth of sin. And in the law, we are seeing Christ. And he's the light of the world, right? This is the Christ who is John refers to as an essential light, the, the source of all things. And because Christ is so bright and Christ is so pure, now when we look to him, we can see those things that aren't so pure. We see a, a great contrast from his light in our darkness, from his perfection in our flaws. And he says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And then he goes on to say, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul says, I, I couldn't know. Likewise, when the gospel is a gospel of good news, now we're saying, uh-oh, there's good news. That must be, mean that there must be some bad news. That must be, mean that there's a reality that man is heading towards death. If, if this is a Christ and this is his good news and this is his gospel, that he can save human flesh, that he alone can reconcile man to God, then that must also mean that man needs reconciliation. Oh my goodness, I didn't know. I was blind. I thought I was being justified by my good deeds. And this is what the people were facing. And this is what Paul had preached, that Christ alone is sufficient for sins. Jesus Christ crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. Jesus Christ the forgiver. And this is what he says. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Opportunity. Sin, finding opportunity through the commandment. It is the reality that we as men are totally depraved. Even after being revealed the truth of sin, now what do we see? We don't see us avoiding sin. We see us committing sin. And there, there's the reality of the text that we're seeing uh, by God's law. We're seeing the nature of rebellion that is in the heart of men because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Every time that we see it and what it's revealing is it's revealing the love of the flesh. The natural man loves to do what the natural man loves to do. Sin against God. Sin takes opportunity through the commandment. So we know that every man, though he acknowledges who, though he may or may not, excuse me, acknowledge who Christ is, a sin is a sin. The thing that we have to deal with is, is the church, as those who belong to Christ, is that we know what sin is and we still do it. There's the, the opportunity that's being taken advantage of. We know what sin does and we still commit it we know how frail we are and we still try to walk in our own strength this is the church i'm not talking about unregenerate men i'm talking about the people of god this is who paul is writing and he's saying these things because we have a natural propensity to stray from the cross 
And when we stray from the cross, we stray towards the path of the flesh. We stray towards destruction. Me and Bethany have uh, often times conversations about sin and thankfully in those times usually I'm reminded of how we sin just like the unbeliever and everyone does it we seem to think that that person's terrible they're Christless you hear how they talk you see how they're willing to to rip someone off or take advantage or they're lazy and won't go to work and they're mooching off of someone. And then uh, when, when these deep discussions come up, I'm reminded that I may not sin the same way, but I do it. The difference is I know better. I know the Christ who's kept the law. I know the one, the, the psalmist even says, in whose law I delight. We should delight in the law of God and we don't. Paul is not saying cast the, the law aside. He's not saying that the law is sinful. But he's saying keep the law not out of obligation but out of delight for Christ. He suffered and kept the law. We can delight in keeping the law. We still cannot fully keep the law but we have a savior who does we have a savior who did we have a savior who has freed us as he comes to uh, say in the passages to come here paul freed us from the law but he says uh, taking every opportunity and it produced in me coveting of every kind and now that's the other thing about seeing jesus christ when we see jesus christ and we heed the words of christ now murder is not just taking the life of man, but now we see what all murder entails. Hating someone. You've murdered them. Guess what? Thank goodness the court system doesn't understand the law of God. You think about it. You'd go on trial for killing a man and you'll get life in prison. But think about it if you were brought to a court who does not... Uh, understand the law for literally what is written but spiritually if they understood if you've hated a man you've committed murder what would we do where would we go where could we hide nowhere the reality is that the law is so revealing that now we see murder of every kind Coveting of every kind, as Paul says. And that's, that's the, the, the wonderful thing about seeing the truth of the law in Jesus Christ is that he reveals the sin that was so deep and so hidden that we would have dismissed it. That we would have said, oh, that's not really sin. Taking a, a pen from the bank or something. Finding a few dollars on the ground. I have a customer and told me a while back and it was really convicting. He said, you know, Used to, when I'd find money on the ground, he said, I would be in a parking lot or something, and I'd be like, oh, thank you, Lord. And he said, now, you know what? Because I'm so convicted, he says, I picked the money up, and I just pray for the person who lost it. That's the, the deepest, darkest parts that the law that Christ himself is revealing. Those every opportunities, coveting of every kind. Now we see that, 
You know, when we come to church and we have $100 in our pocket and somebody says, yeah, they got these on sale for 50 bucks. We think, hey, I want one of those. I can have it. Might be coveting. It might just be coveting. Things that we thought uh, really weren't sin are revealed to us as sin. The things that we do each day, we're being more conformed like Christ. This is the, the truth of being a believer and being uh, so totally sold out to Christ that every day we're seeking out sin. That's what the law is to do. The person of Christ is to reveal the law in such a way that it causes the believer not to just know that it's sin, but to seek sin and destroy sin. To depart from sin. He says, I once was, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. The truth is that without the commandment, there's no perfect righteousness. And in one sense, he says, sin became alive and I died. It's a good thing to consider that. Sin became alive and I died. That's, what, that's really a, a picture of something temporal and literal that needs to be seen for its spiritual purpose. That when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. When Christ reveals himself. And then now we believe that the word of God truly is the word of God. And that it's not just some instruction. But it is the word breathed from the very mouth of God that we should live by. Think about that. The commandment. The word of God. But when the commandment that we should live by came, sin became alive. Now sin became real. Sin became a reality. Sin became a destroying force and I saw it for that. For once what I saw it for is I was living for sin. And now sin becomes alive and I died. And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. I say this almost every week. Uh, when we consider the words of Paul and he's talking here about Sin becoming alive and I died and the commandment that was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through the law it killed me. To die is gain is what he says. To live, to die with Christ. Nothing is better. Because with Christ there is both realities that one is no longer dying an eternal death but one is dying a temporary death of the body in which he'll be reunited with Christ and that he'll be joined with Christ and no longer is it the the eternal that is dying but the flesh is dying and the man has been giving has been given life in Jesus name life eternal life and life more abundantly those things which man cannot gather on his own. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Being joyfully dying to sin. I don't see too many people joyfully dying to sin. A lot of people feel like they're enslaved when they have to put off sin. They're like, man, I just want to do that so bad, but i got to go to church in the morning. I mean, that's a reality. 
There may be people in our church that feel that way. And we should be praying that, that they don't feel like that. You know, the, the truth is that the, the ones that are usually here this evening are the ones who enjoy being here, who want to be here. And some that may not be here tonight are some that just come out of obligation. They don't want to die to sin. Do we want to die to sin? He says, it deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is producing death. Likewise, knowing Christ and knowing sin is producing a different kind of death. The spiritual. One is looked at as negative here. It deceived me and through it deceived me and through it killed me. Driving us to the grave. Sin is driving mankind to the grave since Adam. But the result of seeing Christ and seeing sin through the law is dying to sin. And there's, there's the good part. The oxymoron. The things that the natural man cannot understand because they are spiritually discerned. It says, so then, because I see all of these things, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's saying, you know, used to, this would be something that put me on a leash. The law put me in a cage. It put me on a leash. It kept me from going too far. It held me back. But what he's saying now is, so now the law is holy. The law and the commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. So now the, 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 the law is not the leash holding the man back, but the law is what the man is running to because his delight is in the Lord. Christ said it, if you love me, keep my commandments. He wasn't just talking about ten. But the reality is that there's a change. You know, it's a, it's a terrible analogy. But have you ever considered a dog when you first get it and you put the leash on it, he pulls, he hates it, he'll chew it up if you let him. But then give that dog about six months. Dog wants to go outside. What does he do? He bring you his leash, won't he? He's running to it. He's delighting in it because he sees what pleasures it brings. And for the spiritual man, the law of God is the same way. It can be that thing which holds us back and which we hate and which we tug against and which we war with. Or it can be that thing that we delight in because we know when we go out with the law, we're walking with the Master. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christ does? That we can love the law for its holiness. It's God's law. It's full of His righteousness. And then Paul brings the two together so that we are not confused. And this is the part where he describes how the law cannot save. He says, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Did it cause death for me? Again, I love when he says this. May it never be. That which is good did not cause death for me. Now, see, I told you there was, the, there was the reality that it seemed negative, but the spiritual truth that it wasn't quite so negative. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. 
so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. That's how we view sin. Apart from Christ, uh, it's just a little sin. I mean, Tim said a bad word, but that guy over there robbed a bank. That's what we think. We think, hey, that somehow we, we would go with this guy all day. We would go with this guy that speeds over this guy that steals all day long. And it's because we have a skewed view of what sin looks like. When in reality, if we were being chosen for what is good, Christ would look at both and say, no sirree. God the Father would look down and say, no way. Neither one of you are coming anywhere near me. And you'd be saying, hey, this guy is worse than me. Because we aren't comparing our righteousness to Christ's righteousness. We, we are comparing a flaw with something else that is completely flawed. We're comparing the corrupt to the corrupt. Instead, Paul is telling us that the law cannot save from sin. But what it does do is show us how sinful sin is. There's not any really degrees of sinfulness. There's only one degree of sinfulness, and that's whatever temperature hell is. That's the degree of sin. That's how terrible it is, and we cannot comprehend it unless we know Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean to the person that Paul is speaking to? He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what, am I, what I am doing, I do not understand. Paul is telling us the reality of that statement, that the natural man receiveth not. The things of the Spirit are foolishness to the natural man. Paul is saying, without help from heaven, I have no aid. Instead, I'm sending myself, I'm selling myself to sin. And rest assured, when I sell myself to sin, it's such a costly price that I couldn't buy myself back. That's self-righteousness. Thinking that we can somehow buy ourselves back from the bondage of sin. We got more than we were worth when we sold ourselves to sin. We can't pay it back. It's the reality that the law cannot save. And then we see the law does something else. <coughs> it produces holiness. Because it's showing us Christ. It's producing righteousness because we're grasping and holding on to the Christ who can fulfill it. It's giving us justification, not because we kept it, but because he kept it for us. He's providing forgiveness where we could find none anywhere else. And Paul tells the truth about it as we try to, to wrap our minds. I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. I'm not practicing what 
I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. This must be the reality of sin for the believer. Does coming into a knowledge of Christ. Now remember, God who at sundry times and in a diverse manner spake unto the fathers in times past by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through his son Jesus Christ. We're not talking about seeing or having a vision or a dream or a one-time encounter with Christ, but we're talking about opening the scriptures and knowing Christ. Does knowing Christ cause us to view sin in such a way that the sin that we love, we now hate? Paul doesn't say, I quit sinning. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. One untimely born, he says. This is to whom the Christ has appeared. One untimely born, a chief of sinners. It's not bringing Paul to a sinless perfection. Christ does that through sanctification. And after, after we're dead and we pass on to the next life, after we're present with the Lord, absent from the body, therein is perfection. But the truth is, is sin that we once loved, is it something that we now hate? There's the mark. There's all we need to see the truth of who Christ is. If we know who Christ is, if we want to know if we're saved, do we hate sin? Do we do what we hate? Are we doing what we love? The law, for some, was something that they hated, and they did it anyway. The law for those who are in Christ are something that they love. And still yet, sin rears its head. And when it does, are we running back because we love it or are we fighting a spiritual battle? The reality is that even the, the spiritual man cannot fight a battle on his own. There must be Christ present. That's why we see the, the full armor of God. The word, the truth, who became flesh, a, a double-edged sword, a defensive weapon, an offensive weapon at the same time. He says in verse 20, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. You know why? Because Paul is preaching there of the death that he is to sin. It is not I because I am crucified with Christ is what he says in Galatians chapter 2. I am doing the very thing I do not want to do. Then I am no longer the one doing it but sin that dwells in me. When I think about how he says that, I have to ask myself, not if I sin, but when I sin, is it Sin that dwells in me, or is it me dwelling in sin? That's the truth. That's the question we have to ask. That's why the church is so important. That's why we're to be accountable to one another. That's why God in Matthew has a, a, an application for church discipline. Because sometimes sin is dwelling in the believer, and other times the believer is living in sin. That's what we deal with. A spiritual battle. 
And we have to ask ourselves, do we see sin for sin? And if we do not see sin for how bitter and how ugly and how iniquitous it is against a just and righteous God, then we need to look to Christ. We must continue to look to Christ. And guess what? That also means if we have a need to look to Christ, I can tell you this. If we see sin for what it is and we need to see more what sin is, if that means we need to look to Christ, guess what? We'll need to look to Him from now on. We'll never see sin like we ought to see sin. We'll never be broken over our unrighteousness like we need to be broken. We need to be fixed upon the cross. We need to be fixed upon Jesus Christ because the reality is that the law cannot save from sin, but Christ is able to save. If Christ is able to save me from sin, then I don't need to worry about if I'm keeping the law or not keeping the law. If that is my motive, I will never keep the law. But if I am looking at keeping on hold to the Christ, He's able to help me keep the law. He's able to make me love His law. He's able to make me delight in His precepts. This is why we need Christ. Without it, we would never desire these things. And there's so much more packed into Romans chapter 7. And you could preach a hundred different messages. But for us as a church, more as a devotional type setting... We have to be praying for one another that sin, as it is dwelling in the life of the believer, that instead of it just being that, we want to make sure that we are not dwelling in sin, that we are not living in sin. How can we do that? How can we be sure that the church is not living in sin? Two things. Pray and preach Christ crucified. There's only two things that we can do. Point those and point ourselves to Christ in prayer and point the church to Christ in worship, in preaching, in singing, in everything we do, doing unto the Lord. Our bodies, this living sacrifice. It's such a minute cost for us to present these temples of the living God as a sacrifice unto Him. When he's paid such a high price. And I think we would do well to remind ourselves every time we wake that sin is looking for an opportunity. That sin is looking for an opportunity to catch us up. And guess what? The, the, the truth is that if we belong to Christ, sin will not take us away forever from Christ. But what it is doing is it's robbing our Savior. Now, I know good and well, every member in this church, if we were to go to another member's house and we saw one walking in their door, coming out with stuff that didn't belong to them, the first thing that we would do is call the police. If we saw somebody stealing from one of our members, what are we doing when they are robbing sin, is robbing God of His glory? What are we doing when it's robbing God of His worship? Christ of his exaltation. We must look to Christ. We must be in prayer. Let's go to the Lord. Fathers, we come before you once again. Lord, we're just thankful that, uh, that the picture that we see of Christ, uh, 
Lord is not a, a mental image of, of long hair or a beautiful or attractive face, but that it is a picture of a man who is God and a man who is righteous, a man who is holy, a man who is able to stand when we are weak, one who is able to save when we are dying, and one who is willing to die when we're living for sin. God, we just thank you that this is the Christ that you've sent to the cross. The Christ who is no less than God, no less than man, perfect propitiation. Lord, I just pray that throughout the week, Lord, that you would keep us and that you would draw us closer to thee. Lord, and that you would show us uh, something this week that we have not seen. That you would reveal to us a marvelous truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, one that we could cherish. Lord, one that we can share. Lord, and, and let us, uh, as the body here at Sovereign Grace Baptist, let us be in prayer for one another, Lord. For there are many spiritual battles. There is much flesh to be stripped from these mortal bodies. Lord, there is a, a cesspool of sin that we must be delivered from. Lord, I just pray that we can come together uh, and that we can battle these things together, that we could um, weep with one another. Lord, that we could be uh, sorrowful with one another in the appropriate times and that we can be joyful. Lord, and that we would boast only in you, only in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.